Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Archives Guy podcast. Episode 13, Queen Square. A would-be town center, some views, and a big old cannon. This is part two of a series on the history of Galt's Queen Square. To recap part one, we went over the general history of the square itself and how 20 or so years after the settlement's founding, Galt founder, the Honorable William Dixon Sr., wished for Queen Square to be the town center for his new village. It may have had a little do uh, with the fact that his new hotel, the King's Arms, had just been constructed. However, at the time, in the mid-1830s to be exact, most business and commerce was focused on the other side of the Grand River, where the Farmer's Market and Historic City Hall are located. We also discussed probably the most standout feature of the square, its stunning old churches. The square, in its, in its vicinity, contained three historic churches, Knox's Presbyterian, Central Presbyterian, and Trinity Anglican Church. Each have a long and sometimes complicated and fascinating history. We ended with an overview of the history of the Galt Cenotaph, which honors those who gave their lives fighting in the First and Second World Wars, as well as other wars the Canada fought in after them. So a little housekeeping before we get started. You may have noticed that I have slowed down significantly with producing new episodes of the podcast. That's because I've been taking the time to enjoy my summer more. It's not the only reason. I will be going back to school at Western University in the fall, and I've been preparing to continue my studies and finish my degree in history, as well as classical studies. I've been reading tons of ancient Roman history, as well as re-listening to the History of Rome podcast by Mike Duncan. It's coincidentally the inspiration behind me doing a local history podcast. I'm taking a course on Roman emperors uh, this fall, actually next week to be exact, and have been preparing myself to be a student again. I won't be as active on the podcast as before, but I'm hoping to try and produce an episode a month at least, as I've had uh, the time of my life um, doing this podcast. It's been a labor of love, and I just want to be able to try and keep it going. So apologies for not being more active. Anyway, on with the show. So in part two of our look at Queen Square, we will cover more of this incredibly significant landmark by looking at some of the remaining current sites, as well as those of days gone by. So we're going to start with the Centennial Fountain. So in 18, not 18, 1967, Canada celebrated the 100th anniversary of Confederation. Throughout the country, many different events and commemorations were done, and the fountain was a permanent way of remembering this significant anniversary. One of Galt's most prominent local businesses, the Gore Mutual Insurance Company, was responsible for this gift to the city of Galt. So Marilyn Scott wrote in an excellent history on the fountain, which formed the basis of my research here. Uh, in it, she describes how the fountain came to be. In 1966, plans began, began with discussions between the Gore uh, Insurance Company and then Galt Mayor Robert Kerr. Architectural firm Mark Musselman McIntyre uh, of Brantford designed the fountain, and it took the shape of many of Canada's centennial monuments, the shape, of course, of the maple leaf. This was Canada, uh, the symbol of, of Canada's centennial. So for more details, I'll let Marilyn's uh, article describe it as it does it best. The central and distinctive feature of the fountain is the maple leaf shape based on the centennial symbol. Separate triangle prisms form the leaf and stem and are executed in poured concrete and with bronze sills. 
Water shoots skyward from each prison, prism and overflows into the pool surrounding the iconic shape. Special precaution was needed when mixing water with the illumination, so electro-porcelain tiles covered the bottom and sides of the pool and prisms. Concrete benches ring the, the pool, and trees and plants border the whole triangular island. Visitors standing next to the fountain and gazing either east or west along Main Street will see clear evidence of the Grand River Valley's topography. The river is just steps away, and the east and west Galt neighborhoods perch high above the downtown, making for a very satisfying vista. So just before Canada Day 1967, Galt Mayor Robert Kerr, who was actually also one of the founders of IMAX uh, technology, that's for another podcast, sent out an invitation throughout the uh, area around Galt. He wrote, On thir uh, Thursday, June 29th, 1967, at 9 p.m., the Gore Insurance Company will officially present their centennial gift to the people of Galt. This gift, which is an illuminated fountain, is being presented in an evening ceremony to take full advantage of the spectacular lighting in the fountain and surrounding square. It has been suggested that this fountain, which is in the form of the centennial symbol, will be one of the most outstanding in Canada. The citizens of Galt are naturally anticipating this special event. The fountain has become a mainstay of the square ever since. It's received actually a couple of restorations. First, for its 25th anniversary in 1992 by C.A. Venton Architects, it received its latest restoration for the 150th anniversary of Confederation in 2017. So now, I want to go on to some of the other sites that once occupied Queen Square, but sadly, for one reason or another, are no longer present. One of my favorites is Scott's Opera House. So Scott's Opera House in Galt opened in about 1899 and cost $21,315. Now, it was designed by uh, Frederick Mellish, the Galt architect, who's quite prominent, um, who also designed uh, the Carnegie Library on Water Street North, and both the two-story section of the Farmer's Market building and the old fire hall on Dixon Street. It was located on the site of where the current Galt Cenotaph stands today. It was quite the attraction as countless plays and musicals were held there. Even the incredible new form of media that was moving pictures were shown there beginning in 1908. John Scott, who was also instrumental in the development of the Scott's uh, uh, block building, um, which was also uh, housed the Independent Order of Odd Fellows, uh, building on Water Street North, uh, was a major benefactor of the Opera House, hence why it's called Scott's Opera House. When it opened, Scott's Opera House was proclaimed the most modern and up-to-date opera house in Western Ontario, or perhaps in Canada, and boasted seating for 1,000 people and modern electric lighting featuring 400 incandescent lights. It, it's actually ironic, uh, in the view of the obvious pride in the uh, Opera House's lighting, that an electrical fault was blamed for the 1910 fire that severely damaged the structure. There were calls for its demolition, but the Opera House was rebuilt and op reopened in 1911. It continued in operation until 1928, when it finally closed for good. Now, earlier I mentioned the King's Arms Hotel, William Dixon's Hotel. The local historian Rich Mills, in one of his Flash from the Past articles in the Waterloo Region Record, gives us a better understanding of the history of another of Queen Square's lost landmarks. 
William Dixon and Absalon Shade had built the King's Arms Hotel in 1835, quickly changing the name to Queen's Arms when Victoria became monarch in 1837. It's also known as the Grand Hotel for a period. The hotel had been the scene of many great events in Galt's history, but was also one of the symbols of degradation that the YMCA charter rallied against. The true believers in the YMCA organization must have been secretly smiling as contractors demolished the hotel, cleared the site, and began construction. There were, they were erecting a large three-story brick building that would help better fill, fill the needs, fulfill those 1869 objectives. 18 months later, the scissors snapped, the ribbon parted, and most uh, the most up-to-date YMCA in the province was open. Over the years, several expansions took place. In 1962, a second pool was added to the building. Uh, in 1990, uh, sorry, 1981, the renamed Cambridge YMCA was uh, partially demolished, and a large 800,000 addition was announced, to which Cambridge Council voted a $100,000 donation. Opening in late 1982, the refurbished and enlarged YMCA proved to be almost too successful. Such was the wise growth over the next decade, not to mention the desire to have a more central location for all Cambridge restaurants, residents, sorry, uh, that a three-acre site at 250 Hespel Road was purchased. The legendary Matador Tavern had stood there for th uh, decades, but was now out of business. Purchase and construction costs totaled $5 million, but a state-of-the-art facility resulted. So, and that is today's YMCA, the, the Chapman Family YMCA. Uh, and it's, and of course, sadly, the YMCA in Queen Square will go on to say the, um, the final chapter on it was written in 1998 when Queen Square's uh, structure and its various additions were demolished. One of the most historic sites of the old, uh, of old Galt was about to receive a new occupant. During the hotel era, it had been Galt's stagecoach terminus, uh, stagecoach terminus, as well as hosting important festivities. Visits by royalty, political meetings, sports celebration, and dinners honoring movers and shakers. The YMCA era saw Galt citizens participate in physical, educational, and moral improvement programs. The new era under the name Chartwell Queens Square Retirement Residence has for more than two decades welcomed seniors, many of whom have helped Galt slash Cambridge grow in the latter half of the 20th century now into the 21st century. So today is now home to the Queen Square Retirement Residence. Now, the, next we're going to move on to the Galt Curling Club. Much of the history of the Galt Curling Club comes from the club itself. The original Galt Curling Club was located at Queen Square with William Dixon Sr. as its first president. The facility remained in Queen Square for many years, but was replaced by a skating rink erected in about 1887. This area was also where Galt's 1st World War Regiment, the 111th Battalion, trained. The Curly Club had many accomplishments during its long history in Queen Square. According to the club's history, curlers represented the Galt Curling Club and the Galt Granite Club won many honors over the years, with Ontario Tankard winners in 1899, 1904, 1906, and 1924. In 1948, a Galt rink won the British Consul's and went on to represent Ontario in the Briar. More recently, Galt rings have, uh, rinks have won provincial titles in business ladies, senior men's, and senior mixed. Women's curling began at the club in 1951 and has been a huge success. 
The game of curling began exploding in popularity in the 1960s, and due to this in part, a new building was constructed at the Galt Country Club, and now then you had two clubs flourish in the city, both with active memberships and with keen rivalry between them. Eventually, the old building began to fall apart in Queen Square. It was renovated in the 1980s, but eventually a new home was required. To make way for an addition at uh, the Galt Public Library at Queen Square, a relocation committee was formed by the Galt Curling Club to have a new facility built in 1990. The Galt Curling Club continues today at its location on Dunbar Road near the Cambridge Humane Society facility. Now we're going to talk about probably my favorite uh, part of Queen Square. So among the most unique landmarks in Galt and Queen Square is the Queen Square Cannon. You might ask yourself, why is there a huge cannon in the center of Galt and where did it come from? The answer is not unique to our area, actually. In 1853, Great Britain was engaged in a war along with France, the Ottoman Empire, and Sardinia against the Russian Empire. This was called the Crimean War. The war lasted two and a half years and was very costly and brutal war. One of the most significant events of it was the Siege of Sevastopol in Crimea. The siege lasted almost a year and ended with its capture by Allied forces when the Russians conceded the city. Now, what does this have to do with Galt? Well, with the evacu evacuation of Sevastopol, the Russians had destroyed their great fort, but not all the cannons used to defend the city were lost. These cannons were taken as trophies of war by the British and returned to the UK, and eventually it was decided that these spoils of war would be distributed throughout the British Empire. Now, Galt was chosen as it had been a strong supporter of the war and was the largest and, of course, most British municipality in Waterloo County. In November of 1864, Galt Council received a letter from the Governor uh, General, Viscount Monk, ordering that one of the Crimean guns be presented to the town of Galt. The cannon was accepted with enthusiasm, and the Great Western Railway offered to transport the cannon, and it arrived on December 2nd, 1864. So now Jim Quantrell gives us an extremely detailed history of the cannon in his book, A Part of Our Past, and he does it way more justice than I ever could. So it's not clear what part, if any, the Russian gun played in the Victoria Day celebrations of 1865, but plans for the 1866 celebrations to mark Queen Victoria's 47th birthday called for boat races, horse races, an art exhibition sponsored by the Mechanics Institute, and at 12 o'clock, a royal salute of 21 guns will be fired from the, uh, will be fired from the Russian gun. According to a, a contemporary uh, account of Victoria Day, May 24th, 1866, dawned most auspiciously. The weather was delightful, and the evening betokened a day of amusement, such as Galt had never witnessed before. The town bells began pealing at 6 a.m., and soon people were gathering for the day's activities. Activities began at 9 a.m., and the boat and horse races went off as well. As noon approached, final preparations were made for the firing of the cannon, which had been moved from Queen Square to the cricket ground near the face of the hill overlooking the dam. The firing of the cannon had been delegated by the gun committee to Mr. William Bogue, who had several for served for several years as an infantry soldier in the British Army. He lacked 
a direct experience uh, in the use of field artillery, but felt himself to be fully acquainted with the artillery practice and had convinced the authorities that he had sufficient knowledge to manage the cannon properly. Mr. Bogue was assisted by Mr. James Armstrong, who attended to the ramming of the muzzle loading the gun, and by Mr. David um, Galletley, who was uh, working in the vent of the gun. Three rounds had been safely fired when the powder for the fourth round was placed in the muzzle. Next came the wadding, which consisted of sod, which, which Mr., uh, with Mr. Bogue and Mr. Armstrong ramming it home. Suddenly and unexpectedly, a fearful roar uh, um, went through the holiday air as the powder exploded prematurely. Perhaps the report of the contemporary press expresses the shock and horror which uh, descended upon the spectators as the smoke cleared. Now, this is my like, thing. Like, when you notice that when you see the newspaper media description of what happened with the cannon, it's incredible how much graphic detail they go into. Um, yeah, I think that there's no TV, radio, or anything like that, so people were getting their news through uh, this as their uh, main source, uh, the newspaper. So uh, the more dramatic, uh, the better, right? So before we get going here, just a little warning if you're a little squeamish and all that, we like to keep this like a generally PG show. Uh, you might want to skip this part because uh, it's a little graphic. So uh, if you're okay uh, with that, I'm going to proceed now. The body of Bogue had been driven about seven yards to the front and a little to the right. Armstrong's body was blown about the same distance to the left side, close up to the fence. Both were frighteningly disfigured. The upper portions of the bodies were entirely denuded of clothing and blackened and charred almost out of human resemblance. From Mr. Bogue's body, one arm had been blown off at the elbow and the other hand was missing. Armstrong's right arm was torn out of the shoulder blade and left hand, his left hand was also gone. Mr. Uh, Galletley, who had been, uh, been attending to his duties at the vent when the accident occurred, had his thumb bat badly lacerated and his hand burned. The only other injuries were to two boys who had been watching the firing of the gun. One unnamed boy suffered a slightly scratched cheek from the flying splinter. Another boy, John Laprayek, uh, seven years of age, received an ugly cut on the cheek and was struck by a small piece of ramrod. His wound was speedily treated and soon healed. Immediately following the accident, the bodies of Mr. Armstrong and Mr. Bogue were taken to the old schoolhouse on Dixon Street, where an inquest was held at the direction of the coroner, Dr. Phillips. Several witnesses were called, including David Galletley, uh, but none were able to give a satisfactory explanation of the direct cause of the premature firing of the gun. It was speculated, however, that the firing was too rapid and that the cannon muzzle had not been adequately sponged after the third round was fired. It was, though the, the, it was thought that burning embers remained in the cannon and had ignited the power char, uh, powder charge too soon. The jury ruled that, said, William Bogue and James Armstrong came to their deaths through accident caused by inexperience of the parties to whom the, the firing of the 24-pound gun was entrusted. Sad. Um, the games that had been scheduled for the afternoon were cancelled as the town's joy 
turned to sorrow, and Galt prepared to bury his two sons. The coroner ordered that the bodies be buried without undue delay, so the funeral was held at 8 p.m. the same evening at the old schoolhouse. Both deceased men had been members of the Galt Fire Brigade, which turned out in force to honor their fallen comrades. The bodies were placed on fire engine number one, and, after a short service conducted by the Reverend Mr. Campbell, were taken to St. Andrew's Cemetery for burial. William Bogue was 27 years old when he was killed, and he was a, na uh, a native of Roxboroughshire, Scotland. He and his wife had emigrated, uh, emigrated to Canada two years previously, and for some time he had worked at, uh, for Turnbull and Deans, the predecessor of Charles Turnbull Co Company Limited. Mrs. Bogue was a well-known local vocalist and a woman of frail health. Health. Frail health. <laughs> Sorry. She was in the crowd watching the cannon and witnessed the accident. The shock was such that she fainted, and it was only by the most unremitting attention that she was brought out of the heavy swoons that rapidly succeeded one another. And that's a quote. She was taken home and remained in serious condition. For some time, it was feared that she might not survive, but eventually she came around, and strong hopes were held for her full recovery. James Armstrong had been born in Hawick, Scotland, and he was about 32 years of age. He was not married, had lived in Canada about nine years, and was employed as a wood sorter in the Robinson and Howell woolen mill. Both men were described as steady and industrious, and much respected by their acquaintances. For some time, the accident scene was avoided by the townspeople, understandably, and a full week after the accident, the old cannon still stood on the brow of the hill as no one had made any effort to, to move it to its old resting place in Queen Square. It was almost as, uh, as, uh, was, as it was the day of the accident. And uh, the horror of, the, of that accident continued to hang over the cannon, and few seemed willing to approach it. It was almost like it was just, don't touch it, like it's just too sad, right? The gun was eventually returned to his resting place in Queen Square, but thereafter uh, suffered a certain amount of neglect. In 1885, it was reported that the old cannon was resting close to the sod as the carriage upon which it rested was rotting away. It's thought that the gun rested on another wooden frame until May 1910, when the Imperial Order of Daughters of the Empire had the cannon remounted on a cement base. In the base was embedded the plaque, which reads, Taken by the British at Sevastopol, September the 10th, 1855, given by Great Britain to Canada and brought to Galt. Quantrell goes on to explain more of the story and how the cannon was almost used to help with the war efforts uh, during the Second World War, as materials were badly needed. So there you have it. There's a little bit about the history of uh, one of Cambridge's most, most iconic landmarks, Queen Square. Now, it may not have become the town center that William Dixon wanted it to be, but today it remains a vibrant part of the Galt core. Uh, very busy on most days. Um, with many historical landmarks that truly define Galt as one of the most unique downtown areas in southern Ontario. So I hope you guys enjoyed this uh, two-part uh, series on the history of Queen Square. So thanks for listening to another episode of the Archives Guy podcast. I really appreciate the support I've received over the past year, and yes, it's been about a year since I started doing this podcast. 
While it, I may not be as prolific as a year ago, I'm looking forward to sharing more of our local history with you in the years to come. Please give the podcast a follow on social media, including Facebook and Instagram, and download it on your favorite podcast app. Join me again as next time as we continue to explore our story.